Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm your podcast host and a professor, and I'm coming to you from Archer, Florida at Exotics Farm. And we're going to talk today about the current ecosystem of ag tech innovation and learn a whole lot more from someone who's been an expert, both with some of the major players, major companies involved, and has a real 10,000-foot view, or maybe even a 30,000-foot view, of ag tech innovation and its implementation. So we're speaking with Dr. Adrian Percy. He's the Chief Technology Officer for UPL. He's also a venture partner in Finister Ventures, which is an ag tech venture capital group, and previously was the head of research and development for the crop science division at Bayer. Um, he's also, <laughs> in his credits, a podcast host, uh, hosting Ag Tech 360. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Percy. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's a delight to be with you. And greetings from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I'm based. That's really great. I, last time we sat together, actually, last time we spoke, we were somewhere maybe a dusseldorf or something we were somewhere in germany yeah i seem to remember we may have been in some kind of uh, wine house uh, in a basement <laughs> uh, under you know in a very very ancient uh, castle or something in germany so it was a, a very happy memory yeah that's right it was really nice that was a great that was a very nice uh, very nice meeting but um so basically i know the um big question starting off. Um, I mentioned that you're currently a technology officer, chief technology officer at UPL. And I don't know that most people know what that is. So what is UPL? Yeah, that's a great question, Kevin, because you're, you're right. We're probably not that familiar to many uh, listeners, particularly those in the US. Uh, but actually, we are the fifth largest um, ag chem company now. Um, and so, you know, just behind some of the, our competitors who everyone will know their name of, of Bayer, Syngenta, Corteva, BSF. But we are a global um, crop solutions provider. We are operating in over 130 countries now and, uh, you know, really across the world and bringing, you know, new agricultural products to growers, be they chemistry, biologicals, seeds, or digital products. So quite a, a broad portfolio of activities. And what are the major challenges that UPL is currently targeting in the area of, say, food security or sustainable food production? And, and it doesn't even have to be UPL. What, what, in your opinion, are the major problems in agriculture right now? Yeah, well, I mean, I think everyone knows the story of, you know, going to 10 billion people by 2050 and having to do that when, you know, already we have, you know, 800 million people, according to FAO, going to bed hungry every night. And, and then the additional challenges of, you know, limited resources, particularly water and, and climate change. And so, you know, I'm, as you might expect, a firm believer that innovation 
you know, can can change all of that and can offer us a tremendous opportunity to, you know, increase the efficiency of our food production, to do it in a way that is really friendly to the environment and to, you know, ultimately meet some of these kind of really immense global challenges that we have in front of us. And I really appreciated, you know, your podcast and some of the ways that you frame the the current state of innovation as an ecosystem. And uh, I, I really appreciate that for lots of reasons. And I've actually used that term in a paper since. Um, but why do you consider modern ag innovation space as an ecosystem? Well, I guess there's a couple of things. I think, first of all, you know, these challenges that I just meant, mentioned are so incredibly, you know, important. Um, and I don't believe there's any one company or any one technology or any one type of farming, if you like, that can, you know, can meet all of those challenges and overcome them. So I do believe that we are kind of all in this together uh, and that we need collaboration between, you know, different parts of industry, different sectors within the agri-food uh, chain. Uh, between academics and and industry and between academics industry and and government so you know it is an ecosystem because we're all trying to to work together or should be you know to achieve you know a large goal but more specifically when you look at the ag tech world uh you know and and what's going on in terms of startup activity and new types of technologies there there's a real strong codependency you know we have a lot of investments needed into this space, and those are coming from, you know, institutional investors, they're coming from corporate venture capital groups, they're coming from specialized agribusiness VC groups like Finisterre, but we also need, of course, entrepreneurs, people that can take these ideas, you know, forward. We need scientists who who are coming out of, of, of academia or out of industry. And of course, we need an outlet for these technologies. You know, we need to get them onto the farm. And so, you know, that's why I call it an ecosystem, because there are so many different elements and different parts that need to work in harmony to really have, you know, the outcome that we need. And out of all of the elements of the modern ecosystem, do you have any surprising participants? Like, is there uh, some, the, the big argument I've always had for years is that, Agriculture is so much of an island and so many other technologies have not yet touched it, you know, robotics or whatever. Is there any real interesting player that you can think of that is new to the party? It's really changing, Kevin. I mean, there are so many, you know, companies that are coming from outside our sector who are wanting to get involved in this story. Um, you know, Microsoft, IBM, you know, the big tech giants are, are making you know, big investments in agriculture now to try to, you know, provide, you know, digital tools and platforms and analytics, you know, in order to be much more efficient in, in our growing and production systems. As an example, you know, you, you mentioned robotics and there are many companies now working on, you know, new solutions, you know, um, you know, we all know about automated you know, tractors and this type of thing, but looking at, you know, precision spraying of, uh, of fields or, or using automated picking devices or, or using drones to, you know, either sow seed or to, or to spray chemicals or to take digital readouts of fields. So there are many, many different, uh, you know, sectors which are now getting involved in agriculture. And that's, you know, that's so needed. And it's, it's really exciting to see all of these things coming together. 
Well, the one thing that I've always sensed as a bit of a problem is that technology is expensive. And when you look at farmers currently in the U.S., you know, especially in the big agronomic space, they're not exactly coming home with bucket loads of cash. And so how would you be able to uh, kind of resolve that interface where a farmer who's, you know, maybe profiting every so many years and not that much uh, is in need of a new million dollar piece of equipment? You know, how, how is that going to happen? Yeah, I mean, you're right. The economics are not always pretty in agriculture, despite the you know essential nature of what you know our growers around the world do. Um, I think a lot of the technology for it to be successful has to really help, you know, with grower resiliency. I mean, helping them, you know, economically, uh, but also farm sustainability uh, sustainably to to help their you know their farms and their lands be more productive. I, I think those are the types of technology that will be successful. I mean, no grower is going to want to adopt, you know, at least voluntarily, you know, a, um, a new technology that doesn't help his bottom line. And so, you know, when we look at some of these digital technologies, as an example, you know, they can help enormously with efficiency on the farm, you know, reducing, um, you know, nutrient cost or, or, or crop protection chemistry cost. Or, or knowing when to plant, when to harvest at the at the most optimal time. So these are the types of technologies I think that will help with the economics, and you know will probably, you know, get deployed most you know in in all types of farms across the world. One of the things that I remember from uh, the talk I gave in in uh, Germany was learning about Bayer's digital agriculture platform. And so what's happening in digital agriculture across? The wider sector. Yes, I mean, there's a lot of interest and a lot of effort uh, being, you know, made. I mean, I would, I mean, maybe not everyone would agree, but I would say agriculture has kind of fallen a little bit behind. When you look at, you know, how our lives have been transformed in so many different ways through digitization, agriculture is a little bit of a holdout. And I think that's just, you know, reflective of, you know, the fact it's such a diverse um, you know, sector with different types of farms, with different types of crops, different countries, of course, all over the world involved. But that is changing, you know, and as I mentioned, you know, we there are now, you know, digital platforms out there that, you know, are of various levels of complexity, you know, from being able to manage maybe the entire farm operation to down to, you know, a very simple app that helps you identify a specific weed in the field. To, so that you know, you know, what to spray it with to kill it. So, you know, there's all types of different applications. And, you know, this goes for, you know, the most sophisticated farms in North America, in places like Brazil, right through to, you know, smallholder farmers in places like India and Africa, where maybe they don't have access to a lot of technology, but many have access to a smartphone. And the apps on those smartphones can be enormously valuable when it comes to things like, uh, you know, weather predictions and, and knowing when best to plant, uh, you know, a particular crop. So, you know, digital is, I would say, at the start of this transformational cycle in agriculture, but I think it will, you know, speed up and up. And, you know, at the end of this, and may, whether it's five years or 10 years, I'm not sure, you know, we'll see a similar effect of these types of technologies on agriculture as we've seen, you know, on the airline industry or on the way we watch movies or order, you know, some food from takeout or order a cab. You know, you know, the agriculture will go a similar way in my view. And it's pretty exciting. But all of that takes money. 
And we saw capital that would flow into, you know, biotech startups in the medicine area. Um, other associated technologies were, were in good shape to the point where even companies with a, a, a proposition for, for a potential therapeutic were, were really doing well through like the late 90s, early 2000s, even till now. And the money never really seemed to come to ag, um, you know, at least in terms of uh, the venture capital environment. But what's happening now in terms of investment? So that has also changed. Uh, I, I, I believe there's still a ways to go. But if you just look back at, you know, 2013, there was about a half a billion um, worth of um, dollars being invested in VC work in the ag tech space. You know, last year, we were almost at 3 billion. And, and even though we've gone through COVID this, you know, this particular year, it looks like, you know, we're actually going to see more invested in the ag tech space than in, in, in the past year. So there is money coming in. And then, of course, there is a lot of R&D going on in, in many of the larger companies working in this sector. But if you compare that to the pharmaceutical industry, it's still, you know, it's pretty small potatoes. And so we need more money to come into ag. And, you know, I think as we move through this current technology phase and we start to see exits uh, you know, and um, I think that will encourage hopefully investors to, you know, to bring more money to the table because it's certainly needed. And, you know, over the last couple of decades, we've seen such consolidation in the ag industry and a few companies buying up everything else and kind of creating a bottleneck or at least the perception of a bottleneck in terms of the players that were involved in the space. But now all the new technology, like between using computational methods and uh, data and new techniques like gene editing, it seems like it almost has democratized agriculture to where new startups can start up and be really successful. How much is that really opening this bottleneck to new companies and new technology? Yes. I mean, with this increased investment that we've seen in the last few years, we've now seen hundreds, if not thousands of startup companies emerging in this space. And that's being driven, obviously, by the availability of capital, but also by, you know, the availability of new technology. And that, you know, as you said, I mean, some really exciting stuff coming from the biotech world or coming from the pharmaceutical industry that is now being transferred into ag. And this is this is quite different from what would have happened in the past. You know, we, 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 we typically saw a lot of those pharmaceutical type inventions transferring into ag over the period of a decade. You know, now we're seeing it happen, it seems a lot quicker. And, you know, that's going to help propel some of these, um, you know, some of these technologies. But it's also, we're also seeing, um, you know, ideas and technologies coming in from other spaces, the military, uh, the engineering space, obviously the digital space we've already talked about. So that's really helping driving uh, a lot of these new startup companies. And you are right that, you know, at the top of the food chain, there's, there's you know, relatively few large players. Um, but, you know, with this, you know, new um, kind of wave of new technologies, you know, I'm, I'm, I think that's going to change over time. And we're seeing some very bold companies who are kind of trying to take, uh, you know, pieces of the pie of the big guys, if you like, and, uh, and, you know, get their products to market, you know, using new business models as well from what we've seen before. So, you know, the act, the act, the act space is changing, and I think it will continue to, to change over the next decade or so. 
lots of really positive news and really I agree a thousand percent. I, I love the fact that so many new companies in this space with really innovative ideas. And we're speaking with Dr. Adrian Percy. He's the chief technology officer at UPL and a venture partner at Finister Ventures. And we'll be back with more Talking Biotech in just a moment. A journalist and a molecular biologist walk into a bar. Sure, it sounds like a bad joke, but it actually is a much-needed amalgamation of science communication. Each week, journalist Cameron English and scientist Kevin Fulta drill down on three current science stories. It's a deeper dive into the current issues that is informative as well as entertaining. Usually, the podcast is made possible by the Genetic Literacy Project at www.geneticliteracyproject.org. Listen weekly and subscribe, or become a member of the Facts and Fallacies Army, arming yourself with information hot off the presses that can help you dispel bad information as you find it in that cesspool of social media. That's the Science Facts and Fallacies Podcast, a new episode every Wednesday. Available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcast media. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Adrian Percy. He's the chief technology officer at UPL and a venture partner with Finister Ventures, which is an egg tech venture capital group. And we're talking about the innovation ecosystem of agriculture, particularly in the area of biotechnology, but certainly in all technologies. Biotechnology is just one piece of that pie, in my opinion. But, you know, going forward... You know, I hear a lot about what's happening through the in the industry through the grapevine. You hear, you know, new innovation against weeds, a new change, you know, that is going to revolutionize the way farmers can, uh, you know, do what they do. But a lot of those ideas never come to fruition. And so, what are the major barriers to innovative R and D through, you know, industry or academia? Yeah, so the, you, you're right. Um, you know, for for an idea to you know go from you know the idea stage through to being on the market, for some technologies, it can be more than a, a decade in the agricultural world. And you know, not just taking that amount of time, but a lot of investment. I mean, if you look at what it costs to bring you know a new uh, agrochemical to the marketplace, I mean, the current in- industry estimates are near enough 300 million dollars and you know 13 years of r&d you have to have very very deep pockets you know to be able to swallow that amount of 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 investment and you know also you know during that period we see a lot of attrition and you know attrition comes from various different sources i mean there may not be a market fit it may not be big enough a product to justify the level of investment that will be needed to get through the regulatory system but we're also seeing the fact that, you know, the regulatory hurdles have become higher and higher, you know, both on the chemistry side, on the, on the, certainly on the, the trait side, uh, but even on the biological side. And so, you know, getting through those regulations, which are not actually in the agricultural world harmonized across, you know, countries. So you really have to have almost a tailor-made package for, for different countries. 
um, you know, is is incredibly uh, difficult. And so, you know, again, that's why perhaps, you know, the major companies have had the advantage of, of, of being a to have the deep pockets, you know, to get these products, you know, through the R&D process and onto the market. Now, for some of the newer technologies, you know, some of the biological, biotech type products, um, I think the regulatory pathway is going to be a little bit easier and the cycle, the R&D cycle is going to be quicker. So those are the types of technologies that oftentimes the venture capitalists are looking to back. And that would be also the same for digital, you know, type type tools. So they obviously the regulation is completely different there, uh, if non-existent in some cases, and the costs, you know, much lower. So, you know, I think regulation, um, you know, is really the key here in terms of, you know, a barrier to market entry. Well, how much do you think, if anything, that COVID and the development of this COVID vaccine and, and you know, breakneck speed how much do you think that that kind of rapid innovation and drive of innovation may help us rewrite the rules a little bit to kind of streamline the regulatory system? Yeah, I mean, I well, first of all, I hope it does. I mean, I was reading, you know, just a, a lovely comparison on Twitter the other day of, of, you know, the time it's taken, you know, to bring the vaccine, you know, to the market, which will be, you know, delivered to hundreds of millions of people across the globe, uh, you know, comparing that to a to a transgenic, you know, trait, um, you know, and there's really no comparison. I, I do think that, and I hope that um, there is a more open-mindedness to the, you know, the power of technology and the, and the good that technology can do. You know, in places like Europe and, and, you know, to a degree in the US, but particularly in Europe right now, there is a little bit of a technology uh, backlash. You know, we've, we, we've seen a lot of pushback on, on new types of technologies. But at the same time, you know, the Europeans are hoping that their agricultural system be, can be transformed. To a degree, they want less technology, but they want, you know, also more sustainability. And I think that these types of technologies that you're alluding to can, can help us with both. So they can help us increase productivity and safeguard crops, but they at the same time help us with sustainability. And then it becomes, you know, really an onus on the industry to go to communicate that out to the general public and convince them that, that these technologies are safe and there is a benefit for them, if you like. Yeah, that's really my big concern is that we have such good innovation with not as good communication. And I think it's getting better. And what, what I always feel is that there's such space for us to revise communication strategies hand in hand with technology to the point where we even lead with the communication rather than playing catch up and trying to tell people about the good things technology can do as we're developing or even deploying technology. How, how much of that has been a change in your view over the last uh, decade or so? Uh, uh, totally. I mean, <laughs> you know, just think of, you know, new technologies, you know, that have failed. I mean, you know, again, sorry to use the European example, but, you know, transgenic, um, you know, biotech in Europe was, was a complete disaster. You know, we now have an opportunity with CRISPR, you know, to do something a little bit different. Um, you know, that has not, started well there's probably a hangover from you know the transgenic uh communication story in the past but it does seem that there is you know an open-mindedness arriving in europe and that you know you see like mps from the, the the german green party starting to get behind some of these technologies you know people that were fervently against you know them in the past and starting to understand that there is a benefit 
you know, it's not just a benefit, you know, an economic benefit for companies that sell the seed or for, for growers even that, that grow the crop, but actually, you know, for the environment with some of the things these can do and also for the public in terms of nutritional value of, of, of fruit and vegetables and this type of thing. And I think if we can, you know, convince uh, the public of the benefits to them, what's in it for them, then, um, you know, I think these technologies will become much more acceptable, even in the minds of Europeans, uh, but also, you know, in other countries across the world. Yeah, the Europeans are a tough nut to crack. <laughs> and the, but the thing is that really frustrates me with this is that the, the reasons they state for why they hold the position they do, and I know it's not all Europeans. I mean, quite a few scientist friends over there are so frustrated with the environment. But um, that th the reasons that they state for wanting to avoid these technologies are really the reasons that they should want to adopt them. And as you state, you know, better uh, better quality food for more people and uh, environmental consciousness are, are really cornerstones of this. And I guess maybe it, it maybe it also has to do with the players that are involved and the sense of proprietary nature of technology, which sometimes turns people off. The pharmaceutical industry, though, does it a little different in their innovation model and maybe captures more external innovation through the use of kind of open source technology. And how can that be adopted by the agricultural industries? Well, it, it, it is being adopted. And, and you've seen, you know, a, a gradual shift, you know, to a kind of farmer-like model. Perhaps, you know, that started only a few years ago. But, you know, the big companies have very tried and tested uh, R&D platforms, but they are very focused on a relatively limited number of technologies. Um, so now with the advent of all these new types of technologies, I think many of the companies have realized that it doesn't make sense for them to build these platforms in-house. It makes much more sense for them to work with, with you know, these smaller, agile, nimble companies uh, and, and partner with them and collaborate with them, which I think is much more akin, you know, to, to the farmer uh, farmer world and how that's evolved over the last maybe two decades. And so, you know, I think with this model, you know, maybe we, we, we will see a little bit of a change in communication as well, because these smaller companies, as you said, they're not, you know, <laughs> uh, monolithic, um, you know, enormous companies. They are companies, you know, sometimes less than 20 people. They are very close to maybe academic or their, their university roots in many cases. And, you know, they, they are using technologies which, you know, are, you know, completely breakthrough. And I, I hope the combination of all those different effects means that we can, you know, have a different conversation. And again, I think many of these companies are focused on benefits for consumers and benefits for the environment. And that's, you know, their calling, if you like. Uh, and they're very passionate about, you know, doing that. So, you know, I think, again, you know, that, that kind of focus, um, you know, and, and their belief in what they're, they're doing is, is good for the environment or good, good for mankind is going to really help, you know, bring this technology forward into the mainstream and hopefully get, you know, consumer acceptance over time. Yeah, it's really interesting because I know a lot of people who work in the big companies. And even though the big companies don't get have the perception of being involved for the, the, the farmer and for um, the environment and for food security, everybody I know who works there, that's the reason they're there. <laughs> that they see the big company as a, as a conduit to be able to achieve their personal goals, their personal values of feeding more people with environmental sustainability. 
And it's just kind of a strange paradox that happens there. But, you know, it, when we look across this, this, this whole ag tech ecosystem and, you know, we see this new innovation happening. We talked a little bit about the problem of a lack of harmonization across international regulatory platforms. But what are some of the other really big challenges to getting new technology deregulated? Yeah, so I mean, there is there's vast differences across the world, as I said, and I won't go back into Europe for a while. But as you can imagine, that's one of the you know more regulated uh, regions. I mean, the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, you know, all have very sophisticated, I would say, very science based regulatory systems, and that's that's good, I think, for 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 companies who want to bring new technology forward, and it's it's good for us as 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 consumers. Because, you know, the, the, the decisions on whether these products work or don't work, whether they're safe or not safe, whether they're good for the environment or not good, are based, you know, largely on scientific criteria. So that's positive. Um, but what there isn't is, you know, as I said before, a harmonized regulatory system across the world. And so, you know, how you are regulated in Brazil versus you know, Europe versus the US is very, very different, which, which you know, makes it very difficult, for, particularly for smaller companies that are eyeing some of those, you know, big agricultural markets, but have to, you know, produce vastly different regulatory packages to get through, you know, those different areas. Um, you know, and there are other, you know, more regional challenges as well. I think, you know, in general, and I don't want to be you know, critical of our, our regulatory colleagues, but, you know, sometimes the science is ahead of the regulations. I think that's a little bit of the way of the world. And so, you know, making sure that we have a very resilient regulatory system that is science-based requires continual nurturing. So here where I am, NC State, you know, they've set up a regulatory science course in order to build more, you know, regulatory science capacity within agriculture so that, you know, we can look at these new technologies and evaluate them in a good, you know, scientific manner and not wait, if you like, for the regulations, you know, to have to catch up with, with the science, which I think is really critical. Are there any countries in the world that have a much more loose policy towards regulation? Like, I, at least I get the well, feeling that players like, you know, China seem to be a little bit more flexible with the way that they regulate things. And how much of a possibility is it that an emerging economy, like someone like place like uh, Ukraine or, uh, you know, Turkey could really loosen a regulatory environment and then produce tons of new products for their agricultural markets? Well, you know, um, th there are clearly, you know, different levels. I would say that, you know, in general across the world, the, the, the standard of regulation and the, the degree of regulation is increasing. You know, if you look at somewhere like China, you know, the focus now within China on environmental issues has really meant, you know, led them to rethink you know, how they regulate, you know, products. And they're taking, you know, as you would imagine in China, some very, you know, very, very strong, you know, measures to, to address that. But because agricultural commodities, you know, flow across the world, you know, really uh, the lowest common denominator kind of rules, if you like. So Europe is very influential. Uh, you know, growers in places like India, um, Africa, even here in the US, um, Latin America, they all have to look to EU rules because if they don't, they simply can't export their 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 produce to the you know to the European Union. So that is a very very influential. And you mentioned Turkey. I mean, even though it's not part of the European Union, they they follow basically uh, the European Union regulations because of their export market. So. 
um, you know, I, I I do feel that you know because of that, perhaps we have you know a very well regulated and and um, you know doesn't matter where these products are coming from, they are adhering to some level of regulation. But of course, you know, in some African countries or Asian countries, the actual local level of regulation is 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 not as high as what you would see here in the United States. Yeah, I've kind of witnessed that firsthand. There's uh, places I've been where they're growing biotech soybeans and they're not technically supposed to be. Enforcement of uh, regulation is an, is another thing, right? So, I mean, that's certainly the case that we see in some countries, which I won't name. You know, technology sometimes being rolled out before it's reg- before it's um, you know deregulated. No, I, yeah, I won't name any either. I I want the farmers to do make their choices and do what they do, and you know, I, I'm grateful that they're able to get the get the seeds because they're helping their 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 families and their operations. You know, so so all good. Um, you have a podcast and this is called Ag Tech 360. And I've listened to a few of the episodes. You had a guy on who talked about UV light, which is a big interest of mine. Um, but the topics are really cool, broad range of basic and applied science and diverse agricultural themes. So what inspired you to take on a podcast? Well, to be honest, it's it's very selfish. <laughs> I, I, you know, I've up until recently I've traveled, you know, a lot around the world, and I've met some really interesting people. And you know, I decided that I wanted to start recording some of these very informal conversations, uh, as much as for my own benefit as others, um, because I do find that you know the mindset of many of the entrepreneurs that I meet or the academics that I meet is fascinating. You know, their motivation. Uh, for why they're doing what they're doing is also, you know, incredibly inspiring. And I love, you know, talking about some of the science, um, which, you know, is very diverse, as you said, we have, you know, someone talking about UV light, someone talking about chemistry or plant traits. And, you know, it's really fascinating to sit down with these, these people and just, you know, pick their brains for a few, few minutes. And, you know, hopefully that will be of interest to others. Do you have any topics that you really want to cover going forward? Yeah, so I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of lining up a few, a few speakers um, for the future, and you know, I'm very interested in delving a little bit more into, you know, digital technologies that we've been talking about and how they're going to, um, you know, help to transform agriculture. I think livestock and animal agriculture is something perhaps we don't, you know, talk about enough, and you know, that's a pretty big topic. So you know, that that's another area. Um, but then, you know, I, I've also got some, some uh, appointments with academics lined up in all different areas of, of agricultural science. So hopefully it will be diverse and, and interesting for people to listen into. That's really great. So where can people listen to the podcast? Well, so if you, if you just um, go on to Twitter, uh, at AgTech360 or at Adrian Percy, you can find us on LinkedIn. And then we're streaming through, you know, all the usual channels, Spotify, uh, etc. And so it's pretty easy to find if you Google us. Very good. Now I'll include all of the relevant contact information on the cover page of this particular episode. So Dr. Adrian Percy, thank you so much for your time. I'm glad you're here in the States and hopefully I'll get up to see you again sometime once we're on the other side of this COVID thing. Uh, I really appreciate having you on today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's been a real pleasure. Really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Uh, write a review on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you consume your podcast media. Uh, we're at 1.4 million downloads and going on six years. 
and your continued sharing and supporting the podcast only make it more available for more people. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us if it's a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.